Hello and welcome to the 11th series of the DNV Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck. So far in this series, we have explored the role that COP26 played when it comes to policy development, investment, and supporting a just transition. In this episode, we take a look at the outlook for the fundamental component in the race to net zero, renewable energy. I speak to Una Brosnan, Head of Offshore Strategy and New Markets at Mainstream Renewable Power, one of the world leaders in the development of wind and solar projects. Una shares her first-hand experience of project implementation across the world and gives us her take on the role of policy and investment in accelerating renewables uptake. We hope you enjoy the episode. Una, many thanks for joining me today. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to tell us about yourself, your role at Mainstream Renewable Power and the company's key focus. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to join this podcast. Just a little bit background on myself. Um, my name is Una Brodson. I work with Mainstream Renewable Power. I'm the head of offshore strategy and new markets. I've been here just over a year. And my background is I'm a, a chartered civil engineer and I've been working in um, industry for over 20 years, but very much working in offshore wind since 2009, 2010. Looking at my role, it's very much a global role. Um, I am what it says in the tin. I, I look at the strategy. I look at global market entry for mainstream into offshore wind in particular. I'm very much driving the growth around um, our portfolio and the center of excellence and growing that within our business so we can pivot to where the markets are in the global space. Mainstream has some really great strengths working in, in emerging markets. And I suppose the here lies where we have the success to date, particularly in countries like Chile and South Africa and Vietnam, where our onshore portfolio for wind and solar have been really coming to the forefront. In the offshore side, I mean, we've made inroads in Vietnam in particular. One of our biggest projects for offshore wind is going totally to FID next year. And this is really, really putting us in a good space, I suppose, for, for working with governments who are, you know, at the edge of the transition over to renewables and really keen, I suppose, to make that difference in the country and change their mindset away from coal. The vision itself, I mean, the origins of the company's name mainstream was very much instilled by our founder, Eddie O'Connor, very much around the drive and the vision to make renewable energy um, mainstream in society. And you're seeing that, for, I suppose, really come through in the last decade with the commitment and the, and the confidence really around renewable energy. Thank you very much, Una. Coming to COP26, renewable energy was, of course, one of the major talking points. Could you give us a summary of the concrete outcomes from the meeting that are aimed at accelerating renewable energy project development? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was certainly a very busy two weeks in Glasgow. Um, I had the pleasure of attending, not quite the Blue Zone, but on the fringe events. And, and it was very exciting and, and very much a high expectation of what was to come and, and what we can do working together to achieve the goal. The biggest outcome, I suppose, was really orientated around the Glasgow Climate Pact in particular, which was a climate agreement which was signed by 197 parties attending the UN conference. In essence, this was the crux of it. It was there to keep the vision of, of 1.5 degrees alive, but only if we keep the promises that were made and converted to hard commitments over the two weeks of COP. 
before COP, the world was very much on track for 2.7 degrees warming. But I mean, you know, the hard work that went into the COP26 agreements, I suppose we've made inroads there and reduced that to 2.4 degrees. That's ensuring that everything is converted. But I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done and countries have pledged very much in 2022 to take that further and meet to make sure that we get the carbon cuts that get us down to that 1.5 degrees in particular. I mean, some of the key agreements in the early days, I mean, the first two days saw a real uh, plethora of, of agreements come true during the heads of states visit at the two week event. The global methane pledge was instrumental, looking at 30 percent methane reduction. More than 100 countries signed up to this one. The global forest and land and land use pledge were very much orientated around protection of the forests and looking at uh, reducing deforestation. I mean, this was a key one, particularly looking at some of the Amazon depletion over the last few years. The Finance Alliance for Net Zero, a pivotal one again, looking at our portfolio and how we instill change within the investment side and looking beyond oil and gas alliance in particular, um, you know, our shift from black to green as such. But I suppose the one that really came to the forefront was coal and, and the global coal to clean power transition statement that was made. It was a challenging one. I, I will say I was a little disappointed at the last minute change on that and the change in the wording. But I, I do think on reflection, you know, we've got some amazing wording in there that was never there in the earlier days. So we've made a lot of in, inroads there on actually tackling and addressing and really, really admitting that we have a problem here. So bringing coal into the, the wording was actually a key element of progress within the period. Looking over to transport, I mean, it's an exciting time there. You're seeing the growth of EVs um, very much at the forefront. I mean, the 100% zero emissions um, vehicle sale by 2040 was a big industry um, commitment. And then looking at the aviation side, we were looking at international aviation ambition there as well. Again, a very um, ambitious target to reduce the emissions to limit global average temperature to 1.5 degrees. And then very much on the shipping side, you know, there was commitment there on the Clyde Bank Declaration, which was looking at um, green shipping routes. And the aim initially is to have six of these in place by 2025, but very many, many more by 2030. So that's just a, a quick snippet of some of the key agreements that were there at kind of government level. But there was many more as well, looking at private climate finance, looking at um, a finance alliance for net zero, looking at new climate sustainability disclosure standards, the roles of central banks and multilateral development banks, and very much the pledge influencing regulatory and, and legislative environment as well. I think, you know, all of these combined will make a change. On the accountability side, I think one of the biggest steps forward on that side was very much on the nationally determined contributions and their, their requirement now to report on them on an annual agreement. I mean, these really lie at the heart of the Paris Agreement and, and achievements for these long-term goals and really embody each of the efforts to reduce the national emissions when it comes to climate change. So I think all in all, it was a busy two weeks. Maybe it didn't end the way we would have liked to on a high, but very much stepping back. There was a lot of hard work and determination and a commitment there over the period of two weeks. So a very positive step forward, I think, for our global economy. Yeah, thank you very much for this fascinating kind of overview of what all was discussed there and we will revisit some of the topics later in our discussions uh, mostly in terms of what more needs to be done here but before we go there I would like to touch on investments in renewables as this is such an important area what impact will efforts to incentivize investments have particularly when it comes to renewables development in emerging markets. 
Yeah, great question. The key is the push and pull around this. And as mentioned earlier, there is a number of positive pledges and commitments made on the finance side, you know, naming the Finance Alliance Net Zero, which was very much led by Mark Carney, uh, committing to managing their assets in the region. I think it was totaling uh, 30 trillion US in line with um, achieving net zero. So it's very much aligning finance with the race to zero on emissions by 2050. Looking at the standard side, then the new climate and sustainability disclosure standards, these all feed back intertwined into finance itself. Key aspects there, and it's very much driven now. You're seeing a lot of commitment from, you know, whether it's shareholders or it's it's governments um, driving policy. And there's a very much a social movement now into where finance is being put. And you've seen a number of global players in particular make commitments not to invest in, in fossil fuels or strictly looking at where they can you know, enhance investments around green energy and, and that energy transition and looking at just transition. So it's quite an interesting one. I suppose looking at the push and pulls, I mean, we do need to couple that with what governments are looking at and looking at policy and regulatory frameworks as well to make sure that we intertwine this collectively and make sure that we were able to realize these projects in an efficient manner. Right. We had an interesting conversation with Dennis Young from Diff Capital Partners in episode three of the series regarding the barriers to an accelerated transition. And for him, there is plenty of capital available to meet net zero ambitions, but the availability of projects is the limiting factor. Would you agree with this outlook? I would. I, I do think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of projects when they come to FID being oversubscribed on a global scale. But I mean, at the minute, just to take even the UK as an example, I mean, the last projects that came out were round three back in 2010 when it was announced in early 2010, I think it was. And since then, you know, we had to wait till round four in Scotland to see the next tranche of projects come true. The gap is probably too big. I do realize technology has come a long, a long way and, you know, a lot of progress has been made around the technology and cost reduction. But now we are seeing global recognition on the cost reduction being realized and, and confidence in the technology now that we need to open up these markets and make sure that there is an area to invest. Whether it's an offshore wind or it's onshore or solar at scale, we need that confidence. But very much agree with those um, those words from Dennis Jong. I think it's a case of how do we unlock the potential out there now so we can uh, enable the capital to do its job. So what would you say, what support would be required from governments to accelerate the transition to renewable energy and make it easier to get projects off the ground? Coming from a developer's perspective in particular, I mean, we look at clear pathways uh, for project development in particular. And these are really very much driven by um, commitments from governments, you know, aspirations and visions in country. And we saw that again, just coming back to the UK as, as, as an example, in the early days of offshore wind, we saw the governments maybe um, flip-flop across some of their decision-making and they were committed to some technologies and some some cases, you know, they challenged us to look at our costs in particular, which was not a bad thing. But in there, it caused a delay, I suppose, and it caused doubt on whether this was going to happen. And that that is a direct impact then on investment challenges across the supply chain in particular. Say, for example, if you're looking at a port and it was looking at upgrading and it was looking at it's a bit of chicken and egg for them on is the portfolio going to come? They need very good sight on what and when it's going to come. So I think this will be important for emerging markets in particular. 
So looking at it from a development perspective, I mean, I think it's important that we go support these emerging markets in particular to shape how they're going to release these renewable energy projects. How do they build the industry, support and collaborate with the wider stakeholders and supply chain to make sure they are ready for the lift off of these projects or a particular industry in, in some cases? commitments to strategy, making sure that they've got clear and concise commitments defined so, you know, investors can see the line of sight into where their revenues will be and where and why they need to make these investments. And I think I'll be um, quite vocal around collaborating in particular. I mean, making sure that we've got adequate support and we're bringing across the knowledge and lessons learned from the mature markets and making sure we've got that just transition. And it's not just the skills and support, it's making sure that we're working with communities as well. So it's it's all intertwined, but uh, there is quite a bit of work to be done when you're, you're making sure that these projects get off the ground. Yeah, Una, and I'd like to go a bit deeper there. You have a bit earlier already mentioned Mainstream's experience in working on projects across the world. You just talked about emerging markets. Can you give us some insights into the key challenges faced in these emerging markets and maybe particularly actually in developing countries? This is a real strength in mainstream's DNA in particular. We've really gone into some of the early emerging countries, you know, the likes of Chile and, and South Africa and Vietnam when it comes to renewable energy. I suppose one of the key challenges, and it is a case of, you know, we need to sit down with governments and make sure that they understand the technology and, and the why behind renewables and where the benefits are for the country. Working with them to make sure that they've got the skills or aligning with the skills they may already have. You know, we're very fortunate here in Europe to have the exposure to offshore wind, but there's a number of regions and countries that haven't had direct exposure and, and don't fully understand, you know, what is required. So I think there's some groundwork there to be done. And that's always a challenge whether it's from just a cultural or a language perspective, but equally there, we just need to do it in the right manner. Understanding the business case, I think, is key and quite the crux of, of making sure that, you know, you can justify your market entry, not just from a developer's perspective, but equally where the benefits are for that country and that community. And I think it's key that we get a balance between both of them. Urgency is always a challenge when it comes to working with developing countries, looking at, you know, when you've got your business case developed and you, you speak to the government and the, the various agencies around that, you know, working up the line of sight into the projects and getting the urgency behind it may not always be recognized from the early stages. So it's, again, working very closely and collaboratively with both sides of the fence, whether it's on the development side, the government or with the supply chain to make sure you can enable this. Working in the offshore environment is always a challenge. And I don't think it's fully appreciated until you probably step offshore and recognize where things can change very, very quickly. I mean, we recognize that very much so on the safety side. And if a country or, or in a region in particular has not got has got limited experience working in the offshore um, environment in particular, here in itself can lie a challenge and maybe not fully recognize what the planning and how the area can be such a challenge from an environmental perspective, you know, whether it's um, weather fronts coming in, uh, rolling, rolling storms or working in high uh, wave heights or it's tsunamis or typhoons or whatever it may be in region. Equally, they bring their own little intricacies. And then, it, you know, it links back to things like warranties and commercial arrangements and stand down time all needs to be considered. And then when it comes to things like building a new industry, cost reduction is always on the forefront of the minds, uh, particularly at government level when they're providing subsidies. They look to the mature markets in particular, and they look to see where can we realize that cost reduction very, very quickly. 
and making sure that we can work with them and the local supply chain to bring that to market as soon as we can. But, you know, it does take time. It may not take as long as it has for us in here in Europe, but we need to make sure that we've got a robust system and a robust training and learning and, and transfer of skills into that particular region. So I suppose the crux of it really is collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. I think that's the key one, but it's it's never an easy one to get over the hurdle, um, but it is key. Thank you for sharing this. And could you maybe even give us some specific example of renewable project deployment in areas where there have historically been challenges with doing so? The one, I suppose, that's really at the forefront in 2021 and has seen some great inroads in development and, and rolling out projects is probably the US. I mean, they've tried to get their offshore wind sector off the ground. I think this is the third attempt and very much so, you know, talking about government level. You've seen um, the states lead the business case really for offshore wind, in particular when you look at the likes of Massachusetts or New York. Massachusetts had some big drivers there. They were challenged with assets which were aging and coming offline very quickly, and they needed a technology that could come online fairly quickly and, and supply uh, at large demand into their cities. And they were challenged on the other side then by the gas pipelines being limited in, in diameter, and they couldn't get as much as they would have liked in there. So I think this was quite an interesting dynamic in that it really got their heads to turn towards offshore wind in particular. At government level, we've seen obviously with the new administration, some big steps and big commitments from a funding perspective, from a federal tax perspective, support mechanisms, or looking at uh, supporting the supply chain itself. But equally then on visibility of projects and rolling out um, auctions over the next probably five years, that has all made giant leaps in year. And I think, you know, they've really overcome some of the historical challenges there they had to get the market off the ground. It really is one to watch and, and seeing how this develops, but it's it's moving at a pace and you're, you're seeing some really, really great leaps by some of the early projects now. They're really starting to get over the initial hurdles. Una, as you mentioned, you do onshore wind, offshore wind, solar projects around the world. What is the right mix of technologies to meet the world's energy needs? Yeah, it's a very interesting question and one we get asked quite a bit, actually. The mix, I think the mix will vary right across um, regions in particular. I think we need all of them. You know, it's how you approach and, and where are the key drivers again. It goes back to that business case, what's right for that particular country and that grid system and the stakeholders and where the strengths are within the supply chain. I think that's the crux of it. We will need a spread, you know, from a balancing perspective and, and making sure that we've got a technically robust system there as well. Renewables is constantly being challenged and, and constantly being pushed. We're seeing new new systems, you know, the likes of green hydrogen entering the market. You're seeing battery storage as well. And combining these with onshore and offshore wind and, and solar, that's going to be a really, really interesting move, I think, going forward in, in determining that mix. Many thanks, Una. I'd like to end by asking you one final question. Uh, one of the other key focuses at COP26 was the debate over how we ensure the energy transition is just and fair. Mm -hmm. How important is the role renewable energy developments plays in supporting communities around the world? 
Again, very great question. And I think that the answer is simple. It's huge. And this is probably one of the main reasons I got into the industry myself. I mean, we need to ensure that we can drive this from the right culture from within our industry. And, make, and as a developer, we take a stand on the leadership point there, ensuring that we're not just bringing jobs and supply chain along in, into the market here in Europe, but also, you know, bringing a strong responsibility on the global platform. You know, we bring our skills and expertise uh, on mature market into the international space particularly in emerging countries where we're going to have probably the biggest impact and where we can actually, you know, bring it back to COP is where we can make the biggest impact to those individuals that are on the front line. I think it's going to be key. We're very much at the start of this. I do believe that, you know, we're only just scratching the surface here. I think the next decade is going to be one of our urgency and we'll know where we are very much by 2030 and, and where the challenge is ahead to, to reach our 2050 targets. Una, thank you for joining us today. It was an interesting discussion and I wish you the best of luck with Mainstream's many important projects. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. It's been an interesting conversation and a pleasure to discuss the outlook for renewables with Una. Una has highlighted some of the fundamental challenges we still face when it comes to the implementation of renewable energy projects but also gave us a sense of optimism over what can be achieved if we all pull together. Join us next week for our final episode of this series, where we focus on changing mindsets and driving collaboration. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnv.com slash talksenergy. energy.